0: Thank you for downloading this podcast. We hope you're enjoying this year's programme of public events and that you'll stay tuned for the exciting events we have lined up for the summer term. In the meantime, we have another podcast series that we think you might enjoy. LSEIQ is a monthly podcast where we ask some of the smartest social scientists and other experts to answer intelligent questions about economics, politics or society. Recent episodes have tackled questions such as, is the gentrification of our global cities inevitable? Should we fear the rise of the far right? And how does the modern world affect relationships? To give you a taste of LSEIQ, the latest episode, which asks how can we age better, will begin playing in a moment. To listen to other episodes and to subscribe, search for LSEIQ in your favourite podcast app or visit lse.ac.uk forward slash IQ. We'd like to hear your opinion too, so why not join the discussion on social media using the hashtag LSEIQ, and please also consider leaving a review on iTunes, as this makes the podcast easier for new listeners to discover.
1: Welcome to LSEIQ, a podcast from the London School of Economics and Political Science, where we ask leading social scientists and other experts to answer an intelligent question about economics, politics or society. We are all getting older, not just as individuals, but as societies, particularly in the developed world, but middle-income and developing countries are following on quickly behind us. In 1950, there were 14 million people over the age of 80, globally. In 2080, that number is expected to be 700 million. In Britain, a child born today will live for more than 90 years and more than 30% will reach 100. Indeed, Michael Murphy, professor of demography at LSE, has said that perhaps the greatest achievement of humanity over the last century is the doubling of the amount of years a child could expect to live from birth. Given the extended lifespans many of us will live, in this episode of LSE IQ, Sue Winderbank asks, how can we age better?
2: This is the common house, and everybody, uh, we have 11 units here of townhouses, and everybody owns a portion, they own their own townhouse, and then they own a portion of the common house.
3: Okay.
2: Um, the common house has two bedrooms and two bathrooms. Okay, so you
3: can have guests come stay? We can have
2: guests, yeah. Um, if it's somebody that we know, like a family member or a good friend... My name is Kate. Um, Last October, I don't know how it happened, but last October I turned 70, um, and I um, was living in Ohio, and seven years ago I packed my Toyota Corolla and drove cross-country to Santa Cruz. Um, I really did not know about co-housing. I'd kind of heard about it, but I didn't know anything about it and certainly didn't had never seen a co-housing place And um, I was looking for a place to live and heard about this. And so I decided to come and and, um, check it out.
3: Kate lives in the New Brighton co-housing community in Northern California. Co-housing communities are intentional communities created and run by their residents. Although we are admittedly near Santa Cruz with its hippie past and countercultural vibe, co-housing is different to a commune. Residents have their own private homes with all the regular amenities. But there is typically a common house where residents eat together a couple of times a week or month and meet together to manage community activities, including the upkeep of shared spaces, which they mostly do themselves. So what are some of the benefits of living in this kind of arrangement?
2: Well, it's an efficient way to live. Um, we share washer and dryer, um, tools, meals, um, even our problems or stories we might confide in somebody but i i think of it as a sharing a sharing a sharing our lives i've always been a do it yourself kind of person i mean when our children were small um we did a parent participating nursery school and i always like to have my hands on things and so i figured with co-housing that would be that would be um kind of along the lines of my personality. Also, I'm out here with no family, and so I figured that this would be as close to family as I could get.
3: So what is it like to live here?
2: I feel like it's an old-fashioned sense of neighborhood Um, through our participation um, for the operation of the community. We have a courtyard in the middle, and then we have three buildings around it, and the common house is on the fourth side. So we're, really a self, we're on a busy street, but we're very self-contained. There's no um, cars in the community. Um, the children can just walk over to each other's houses.
3: Kate lives in a multi-generational community and enjoys it that way. But this kind of housing is also being adopted by communities of exclusively older people seeking to enjoy some of its benefits. Kath Scanlan, Assistant Professorial Research Fellow at LSE, explains.
4: Well, really the idea of older people's co-housing started in Denmark and there are lots of established communities in Denmark. They're, I would say, they're not as much about providing support for vulnerable older people. They're about older people who want to take control of what their life is going to look like in later years and they decide that they want to live in a really sociable and, and... uh, a, a place with people with like interests and, and so on and so they'll come together in, in this community. Um, some of them are for older people only, some of them are f- will accommodate young people too. The, probably the best known one is older, in this country at least, is Older Women's Co-Housing, the acronym is OUCH, and they're in Barnet in North London. This is a scheme that opened up recently, it's only been occupied for about three years. It's a very beautiful design. It's won a lot of architectural awards. It's on a triangular site that's surrounded by houses. Uh, So it's tucked away and all the homes that are in it look inwards onto their communal garden and and space. Now this particular scheme is only for women and it's only for women. I think the minimum age is 55, but the women who live there are mostly older than that. Um, It took a very long time to come to fruition the members of the group started meeting, now I think 18 years ago. So it was a very, very, a very, very long gestation. And what that meant is that the, the people in this group, the people who are now living in this scheme, know each other really, really well. And I think that has been one of the fundamental elements of their success, is that they know each other and they trust each other.
3: And you're planning to do some research in this area, aren't you? What are you
4: planning to look at? One of the benefits that has been claimed for co-housing and especially for co-housing for older people is that it's a way to cut down loneliness and isolation amongst older people. Now we know that's a huge problem everywhere in Western societies and not only is it a problem in terms of just loneliness is bad and and nobody enjoys being lonely but it also can lead to all kinds of knock-on effects on mental health and on physical health. So What's often claimed is that living in this kind of intentional community, such as a co-housing scheme, means that people are less lonely, that they're more socially active, that they're more physically active probably, and that should have knock-on benefits for their health, for their longevity, for their engagement in society. So lots of people who've looked at this from a kind of qualitative point of view have said, this is great because it has all these benefits for the people who live here. and benefits for society at large because healthcare costs are less and so on but it's never been empirically studied with evidence to prove this is the case so we are hoping to be able to look at this over a five-year period and find that evidence is there actually evidence that living this way has benefits for mental and physical health and can we quantify those benefits
3: given the aging demographic in this country and many other Western countries, could this ever be anything but a niche solution to some of the issues like loneliness and depression, isolation in later life?
4: If you're talking specifically about co-housing, I think realistically, this is not going to be a mass housing solution for millions of people. Quite apart from the benefits for older people, there are a lot of practical difficulties with getting these schemes off the ground, It requires enormous dedication and huge amounts of time to, to do it successfully in the British system, as evidenced by how long it took for the ouch scheme to get off the ground. Nevertheless, it, it, it is a kind of test bed for this kind of solution where you intentionally bring together people who are not re- blood relatives or the kinds of people who would normally live in this kind of group setting like say university students in a halls of residence or something like that y- you have this uh, almost a natural experiment does forming this kind of community benefit people and if we find that it does then there are other ways of doing it it doesn't have to be co-housing there, could, there are other kinds of things that, that we could look at that could um, bring these benefits to more people. Of course, another important issue is that
3: co-housing isn't for everyone. Back in California, I asked Kate, what kind of person might enjoy living in this kind of community? Well, I think somebody
2: who's a do-it-yourself person, somebody who likes other people. We had somebody living here who was an introvert and moved in hoping that it would bring her out, and it didn't, and she moved out. Takes a lot of patience to live here, because everybody does things different, different ways, and you have to um, understand other people. You know, I think any time that you live with other people, everybody has personalities and backgrounds, and you have to just kind of put up with with how other people live sometimes. And that make to
3: me that makes it interesting too. But beyond the co housing environment itself. Cass Scanlon thinks these communities might have lessons that could be applied in other settings.
4: Yes, we could apply this in other settings like other residential set- settings for older people. Well, there's a whole spectrum of housing for older people from retirement villages for active seniors to nursing homes and, and care homes for people who really can't look after themselves. The more care is provided, the less autonomy the residents have, which is n- not surprising, but that lack of agency and that lack of involvement about making decisions about things that affect them is, is a very strong contrast to a co-housing community where the people who live there decide everything. They There isn't any outside management. They are the people who run the place, and so we're expecting that we'll find that they feel happier and more fulfilled and more involved, and maybe that could be transferred to how these other kinds of settings for older people are run to give the people who live there really more of an active role in running their own communities.
3: Underscoring how important connectedness is in later life is some research by Thijs von Den Broek, Assistant Professor at the Erasmus School of Health Policy and Management in Rotterdam and formerly of LSE. So you've done some research on um, depression in later life. What, What did you actually look at?
5: So um, my colleague Emily Grundy and I, we looked at uh, differences in later life depression between Eastern European countries and Western European countries and what we found was that um, older people in Eastern Europe tend to have uh, more depressive symptoms than older people in Western Europe.
3: What are the predictors of depression in older age?
5: Well there are many, Uh, there's a strong socio-economic gradient Um, People lower-educated people tend to be uh, tend to have more depressive symptoms in later life than higher-educated people. Also, uh, there are lots of important family factors. Childless persons tend to have uh, more uh, depressive symptoms than uh, parents. And also, um, the mental health, later life mental health of people who live with a, a partner or a spouse uh, tends to be better. Than those who uh, live alone.
3: So, um, did did having children protect people from being de- being more depressed in later life?
5: Uh, yes, it, it's uh, our our findings suggest that uh, ha- having children is indeed a uh, protective against uh, against depression and also feelings of loneliness, and. Um, the extent to which this is the case is, is larger in Eastern Europe than in Western Europe and um, this is also in line with what we expected because uh, given the erosion of, of st- government support for all the people uh, in Eastern Europe, um, well this has actually made the, their dependence on, on, their, on having ch- on their children uh, stronger. In the UK social
3: care is under threat. Is this something that we should be concerned of in the context of aging?
5: Well, uh, our, our, our research s- suggests that uh, the extent to which um, the welfare state actually uh, reduces the uh, the extent to which people are uh, dependent on their family for their welfare actually uh, also um, well, is associated with the extent to which we find cross-national differences in the links between childlessness and, um, and, um, and later life depression. So such uh, su- su- potential cutbacks might result in uh, larger mental health inequalities in later, in later life. I believe so.
3: Do you think people should be more consciously aware of building community and social capital around them given the findings of your research?
5: Well, uh, let me go a little bit beyond uh, my own research when answering these, this question. Um, I think uh, the answer is yes, loneliness is, is, a, is a big problem for older people and mainly for uh, people in very old age, I have to say, and it's associated with, with, with mortality and, and, and morbidity. So it's, uh, it's, uh, it's increasingly also seen as a public health issue. Investing in your, in your social embeddedness would be something uh, that, yeah, that people should strive for.
3: Japan is, of course, at the forefront of the global ageing phenomenon. In 2006, it became the world's first super-aged society, with over 21% of the country's population being over the age of 65. Hiroko Akiyama, professor at the Institute of Gerontology at the University of Tokyo, explains what these trends look like today. So what kind of demographic changes are you seeing in Japan?
6: Well, I mean... Uh, we are uh, the front runner of uh, kind of super age society uh, already i mean twenty eight percent of the population is age sixty five and older and uh, in uh, by uh, the uh, 2030 about one third of the population will be sixty five and older, and the twenty percent of the population will be seventy five and older. So it's a rapidly aging. And at the same time, I mean, we are living longer. Uh, now, I mean, uh, the uh, life expectancy is I mean, uh, the, uh, 81 years for men and 87 years for women. So we are living longer, but also we are living healthier. I mean, uh, uh, comparing the uh, previous I mean, generations.
3: People in Japan are actually aging better than 20
6: years ago, aren't they? Could,
3: could you say something about that?
6: Well, I don't think that we have secret recipe for uh, a long life. So many factors uh, for longevity uh, include, the, of course, uh, the health and uh, educational attainment and financial well-being and social class. And lifestyle choice such as nutrition, exercise, and smoking. So this is forming I mean, any country. Uh, so it's kind of integration of this wide range of factors I mean, into the I mean, aging process. Uh, I think that's the, the Japan's longevity is uh, the result of those integration some of Professor Akiyama's research
3: looks at retrofitting normal communities so older people have a better quality of life and find it easier to remain in their own homes for as long as possible. The project is looking at two towns, one, Kashiwa, not far outside Tokyo, and another, Fukui, is a more rural community in the west of Japan's main island, Honshu.
6: Okay, um, so... The current communities in Japan were built when the population was much younger. So, I mean, the the Japanese population shaped like a pyramid. Okay, so uh, there are many uh, children and only 5% were older people. Okay, but now, as I mentioned, almost one-third of the population is, is 65 and older. So the current infrastructure, the hard infrastructure like housing and transportation system and also soft infrastructure such as the education system or employment system or health and long-term care system. I think we have to look at the current system and rebuild. They both mean hard and infrastructure. So we are uh, uh, probably six or seven years ago. We started kind of a social experiment to redesign the just ordinary community to uh, kind of community which meets the needs of highly aged society. We started in two fields: one in a uh, just ordinary community in, uh the uh, metropolitan area, and the other one in rural area. And for two years, the first two year the Trying to do is to redesign the community for the people of all age can live for 100 years, staying healthy and active and connected and with a sense of security. So, what kind of practical um, changes are you looking at? Okay, for example, I mean, there are many other issues we have to deal with. For example, one is our transportation system. Okay, and because very soon, uh, 20% of the population will be 75 and older. Many people, those age group, are experiencing a driving car. So we are trying to create the alternative transportation system. And another project is looking at creating the opportunities for seniors can participate and work. So actually we are creating many workplaces in the community. And uh, the another project, Japan's education system is very front-loaded. I think they really focus on people under 25 years old. So I mean, another project is focused on lifelong learning system. And so people can have opportunity to learn for a uh, lifelong, I mean uh, through I mean, lifelong. And uh, another, I mean, very big project is of course, I health and long-term care. Uh, the project is uh, we are combining the uh, we are kind of create home-based health and long-term care system. So a team of different professionals deliver uh, health and medical and also long-term care services to the home. So this is really tremendous kind of reform of health and long-term care system.
3: These measures are of course focused on dealing with people's frailties in later life. But Professor Alan Walker, Professor of Social Policy and Social Gerontology at the University of Sheffield, is interested in reframing the way we think about ageing. So you talk about ageing as a lifelong process. What do you mean by that?
7: Well, I think a general misconception, but also among many social policy analysts, is that when we speak of ageing, We actually mean the period from 60 or 65 to to death. And I think that is a fundamental misconception uh, of what aging actually is, because we begin aging in the womb and it takes place from birth to death. And a major problem, I think, for society is that we've neglected The fact that what happens to us in later life is largely caused by what we do in early life and midlife.
3: And some of your research actually showed that we have a great deal of personal control over how we age, doesn't it?
7: Well, I would say that um, if we think about the ageing process, there is nothing that is under the complete control of individuals. I think it's an it's an individual and it's a societal responsibility. Um, but there is a huge misconception, and that is, and wide, widely held, that there's a gene for ageing, and actually we can't do anything about it. It's all predetermined, and no matter what we do, whether we smoke, drink, are relatively inactive, it doesn't matter at all because... You know, the, the great reaper in the sky is going to determine when, when we die or when, when we age. That is absolute nonsense. The fact is there is no gene for aging. And when you look very closely at what determines how we age and basically what biologists are concerned with in the aging process is functional ability, what we can do. And actually that's what most people associate with aging. So when we talk about being old, it's being not able to get around and not able to do the things that we used to do as younger people. But how that is determined is largely by what are called environmental factors and not genetic ones. That means behavior, lifestyle, it means uh, air pollution, it means diet, it means deprivation. So, all of those factors account for about four fifths of the ageing process, and genetics, when it boils down to it, account for only one fifth.
3: So, why do policymakers focus on old age rather than ageing?
7: I think that the neglect of ageing by policymakers is attributable to a number of factors. And, you know, frankly, most policymakers have very short time horizons. And for some of them, aging is just too long a period to focus on. So it's much easier to to contemplate later life and old age. And the problem there is that if they do that, they're always reacting to what has already taken place. You know, they're responding like an emergency service to increasing obesity or increasing frailty or multimorbidity, they're not intervening at an earlier stage of the life cycle to try to prevent those things. So that that would save money for the exchequer, but it also would improve the quality of life of older people immeasurably. And then the other big barrier to policy action is the idea of prevention. Because if we take a life course approach to aging, the fundamental fact that we're trying to get across is that we have to prevent those things that we call the inevitable features of later life, those chronic conditions, the coronary heart disease, the diabetes, and so on. We have to prevent them. Yet in Britain and in in fact most developed societies, the huge amount of health resources are devoted to acute care and emergency care, not to preventative care or preventative medicine. And that's like trying to turn around a huge oil tanker at sea. It will take a massive amount of effort. And the policymakers do not seem to be interested in embarking upon that huge effort.
3: What would a whole life course strategy look like?
7: Well, if we wanted to implement social policy for the life course, which was aimed at preventing as far as possible, all of those chronic conditions associated with later life, I think we would need to start at the very earliest point, of course, with fetal health, ensuring the very best maternal care for for women, uh, particularly because inequality shows itself in cumulative ways across the life course, particularly ensuring that those who are most deprived get the best possible care. Then in childhood, we have to ensure that children have the very, very solid foundation on which to to grow the rest of their lives. They have to be taught, for example, about the importance of activity and, and good diets. They have to be taught that they're likely to live to be 100 years old. And if you're going to live that long, you have to look after your bodies as well as you can. We need then midlife policies. Uh, particularly at the workplace, because many jobs create the conditions which lead to disability in later life. They they wear uh, people's bodies down. They uh, it cause excess tension and stress, which is also a major factor in, in, in needing to chronic conditions in later life. And then I would say also we need a remedial policy for those people who reach old age But they haven't undertaken all of those preventative activities and society hasn't acted to try to enable them, empower them, if you like, to be more active and to take better care of of their bodies over their life courses. So then we need remedial action and that's we need um, prosthetics. We need changes in the environment to enable people who are frail. Or have chronic conditions to become included in society and not excluded. So you see, what I'm talking about is is a complete life course approach, and it needs to be a radical life course approach.
3: I think I've read some of your writing where you've described longevity as potentially an asset socially and economically. What do you mean by that?
7: I think that most policymakers across the Western world regard. The ageing population as a problem. And in particular, they regard it as an economic problem. And that's basically the starting point for most political discussions of later life. And I think that is fundamentally wrong. And it's a road to nowhere because the populations are aging. And there is no alternative to population aging, we can track the aging of Western society back to the 1840s and it's been linear. So there is an, an inexorable increase in longevity. So as societies, we need to respond to that. And I think one of the ways we do that is say, well, in what ways can we turn what's seen as a burden, in negative terms into something much more positive? And the positive is this, that Because we have an ageing society, we have an ageing workforce and particularly in those countries where immigration is a big political issue, there is no alternative but to make better use of that ageing workforce and employers are not doing that, not at all. And they have in the past, of course, relied on rejuvenation, getting more young people in. But ageing means there are fewer young people. So, in a nutshell... The future productivity of countries like Britain rests heavily on how we utilize the skills and experience of an aging workforce. Yet in most workplaces, people get trained only at the early stage of their careers and then basically they're left to fend for themselves. So we need a life course approach to education and training, lifelong education, lifelong training. And then there's the other side of the aging process. And that is those people who have frailty or have difficulty, they need to be helped. And, and there are all sorts of possibilities for new technologies to assist people with frailty, to assist their carers, to take better care of them and to do so remotely. So I think there are lots of possibilities for increased productivity and increased economic growth in the aging of the population.
3: And this brings us on to the contentious topic of working into later life and the increasing state pension age in the UK and other countries. In the UK, under current law, the state pension age is due to increase to 68 between 2044 and 2046. Following a recent review, the government has announced plans to bring this timetable forward with the state pension age increasing to 68 between 2037 and 2039. Here's Alan Walker.
7: Well, I think there's a simple fix to the ageing of the population that most policymakers have tended to grab onto, and that is we can cut the cost of pensions by simply increasing pension ages and across all European countries. And in fact, most of the Western world policymakers have decided that is their quick fix. And the problem with that quick fix it's not that people are living longer, therefore they have, potentially have the capacity to work longer. The big problem is inequality. There are some people who have the capacity to work longer, and there are many of those people who want to work longer. So for example, there are more than a million men in the British labor market who are over pension age. And most of those are there because they want to be there. They want to continue working. Don't want to to give up. Okay. There may be some push factors uh, involved, such as low income, but I think for a large proportion of them, that is there is voluntary additional work. But then the other side of the coin is those people who have worked in jobs intermittently, long periods of unemployment, or have been in arduous labour, and they are simply not able. to work longer. So if you push the bar up, you make the lives of those people who cannot compete, cannot work, so much harder. And all of the research evidence shows that psychological distress is increased when you increase pension age among those people who simply cannot respond to the increase in pension age.
3: In Japan, the retirement age is relatively young although Prime Minister Shinzo Abe has said he wants to raise it beyond 65 and allow people to defer their pensions beyond 70. I asked Hiroko Akiyama about this. So now I think uh, many companies in Japan retire people at 60 and there's an option to carry on working till 65. Is that sustainable?
6: No, I don't think so. Because already we experience a shortage of labor force because fertility is very low, quite low. And uh, it's really uh, not sustainable. And uh, I mean, we have to come up with some strategy to uh, people, I mean, seniors. They uh, contributed to labor force. As I mentioned, we are living longer, but also we stay healthier uh, in old age. And uh, so, from the beginning, about uh, 80% of Japanese seniors healthy until mid-70. And it's actually, we can expand that age to age 80. So, we like to see 80% of the Japanese seniors are healthy, I mean, functionally healthy. And also, 70% of the Japanese seniors are willing to work they actually, they prefer being the part of the contributor to the society rather than just receiving pensions. Mm-hmm,
3: mm-hmm. Now, I mean, we, we all age and become frail differently. You know, perhaps if you're a professor, you know, your, your, your health might be slightly different than, you know, if you have a very manual job. Is there a danger that by increasing retirement ages will leave some people in poverty in later life?
6: Well, in my view, it will not be wise to raise retirement age. And I think we need more flexible work arrangements. Because people, I mean, after 60 or 65, like the second half of the marathon race, it's really, I mean, people are diverse in terms of physical and cognitive abilities. And also the time, I mean, they can free, I mean, it's because some people might be taking a elderly parents or a spouse or taking care of grandchildren. And so for some people they can work full time, but some people are more at that time is more limited. So I think we uh, have to come up with more flexible work arrangement. So everyone can work within the capacity they have. So raising retirement age is not wise. First of all, I think in terms of productivity and safety.
3: I asked our interviewees to sum up how they thought we could age better, either as individuals or as a society. Here's Thijs von Den Broek.
5: Well, there there are probably many, many answers to this question. uh, But something that, that... I would like to point to is uh, the reduction of barriers to upward social mobility because we know research shows that people who uh, grow up uh, in a family of lower socioeconomic status tend to also have, even in later life, uh, poorer mental health. But this is largely due to the fact that they uh, end up having lower education, lower socioeconomic position in adulthood themselves. So if we would manage to uh, enable these people to also achieve, uh, to, uh, to climb up the socioeconomic ladder, then this also might come with um, substantial later life mental health benefits for them.
3: Alan Walker focuses on an area that most of us have some control over.
7: If we want to age better as a, as a society, I would say the one thing we can do is to ensure that we remain active across our life courses. Now, that doesn't mean extreme activity. I'm talking about mild to moderately active. If we do that, then everyone is going to have, on average, a more healthy later life.
3: Great. I'm going to be doing an extra lap around the park at lunchtime.
4: <laughs> You're a park runner, then. <laughs> I'm a
3: park walker. Here's Professor Hiroko Akiyama.
6: I would say uh, keep socially engaged. And this is something that Kath Scanlon
3: concurs with. How can we age better?
4: By staying active, by maintaining. A wide group of friends of all ages, not just amongst our own age group. I say as an incipient older person, <laughs> I hope to someday become an older person and indeed an extremely, extremely old person. And I think the way to do that is by remaining active, remaining intellectually engaged with whatever it is that interests you and really staying out in the world rather than retiring to the comfort of BBC4 and and Netflix.
3: <laughs> in the new Brighton co-housing community in Santa Cruz County, it's dinner time. There's a big thing here, I don't know about in England, but
2: there's a big thing about um, seniors being lonely, um, not having the social, socialization. And that's something that here, everybody's very social, that, you know, we, we get together, at the minimum, we get together twice a week for dinner. Um, but we also, just walking across the courtyard, we'll run into people and, and you know, chat. And it's, I think it's very hard to be lonely here unless you don't leave your door.
3: How do we age better? Tell us what you think using the hashtag LSEIQ. A big thank you to Kate and the New Brighton co-housing community who graciously allowed me to look around and invited me to stay and enjoy dinner with them.
1: This episode of LSEIQ was brought to you by Oliver Johnson, Tom Williams and Sue Winderbank. This episode was based in part on the following research. Japan's Longevity Challenge, Science Magazine, an editorial by Hiroko Akiyama. Number of children, partnership status, and later life depression in Eastern and Western Europe in journals of gerontology. Series B, psychological sciences and social sciences by Emily Grundy, Thijs van den Broek and Catherine Keenan. Development of new co-housing, lessons from a London scheme for the over 50s, urban research and practice, Kath Scanlon and Melissa Fernandez. A new approach to aging in Europe Making Longevity an Asset, Mopact Policy Brief 10, produced by the Mopact Project, coordinated by Alan Walker and funded by the European Commission. For more episodes of this podcast and to subscribe on Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud, please visit lse.ac.uk forward slash IQ or search for LSE IQ in your favourite podcast app. And please consider leaving us a review as this makes the podcast easier for new listeners to discover. Join us next time when we ask, is gender equality possible?